This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Dozens of Ukrainians are feared dead after a Russian bomb destroyed a school sheltering about 90 people in eastern Ukraine. The uh, governor of Luhansk province said that Sunday that 30 people were rescued from the rubble of the school in the village, but the rest probably did not survive. Elsewhere, more explosions rocked the Black Sea port of Odessa. Meanwhile, Ukrainian soldiers making a last stand at a steel mill in the besieged city of Mariupol said they would not surrender following the evacuation of civilians from the sprawling site. As the largest European conflict since World War II churned on, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. First Lady Jill Biden made surprise visits to Ukraine. Leaders from the group of seven developed democracies pledged Sunday to uh, phase out or ban the import of Russian oil as they met with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky for online talks to stress their support and display unity among Western allies on Victory in Europe Day, which marks Nazi Germany's surrender in 1945. Cutting out Russian oil supplies will hit hard at the main artery of the, the President Putin's uh, economy and deny him the revenue he needs to fund his war. That's according to uh, the G7 countries, which include the U.S., Britain, Canada, Germany, France, and Italy, as well as Japan. All this was made in a statement. Casting a look back at World War II, the leaders stressed unity in their resolve that Putin must not win. U.S. President Joe Biden's call with the G7 leaders and Zelensky lasted about an hour. Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi's office said in a statement that G7 leaders reiterated the commitment to diversify energy sources, reducing dependence on Russian supplies. This is VOA News. The death toll of a powerful explosion at a luxury hotel in Cuba's capital has increased to 31 as search crews with dogs hunt through the rubble of the iconic 19th century building looking for people still missing. The five-star hotel Saratoga in Old Havana was preparing to reopen after being closed for two years when an apparent gas leak caused a massive explosion Friday. That blast damaged nearby structures including the historic Marty Theater and the Calvary Baptist Church. It's a headquarters for the denomination in western Cuba. Uh, municipal authorities say burials for victims have begun already, but some people are still waiting for news of missing friends and relatives. At least 44 migrants drowned Sunday when their boat capsized off the coast of the western Sahara. That's according to a migrant aid agency. We get more details from VOA's Marissa Melton. Twelve people survived the tragedy. A spokeswoman for Caminando Fronteras told reporters that the bodies of seven victims were brought back to shore, but that the others could not be retrieved. There was no immediate confirmation from authorities in Morocco. Morocco sees the disputed Western Sahara as an integral part of the North African kingdom. Morocco is a key transit point on routes taken by migrants hoping for better lives in Europe. Marissa Melton, VOA News. Filipinos are voting for a new president with the son of the ousted dictator and a champion of human rights as the top contenders. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son and namesake of the strongman ousted in 1986, People Power Uprising has led pre-election surveys. The His closest challenger, Vice President uh, Lenny Rebrito has uh, uh, tapped into shock and outrage over the prospect of another Marcos holding the top office. 
The winner of Monday's election will take office on June 30th for a single six-year term and stands to inherit immense problems, including deep poverty and the legacy of a brutal anti-drug crackdown led by the outgoing leader, Rodrigo Duterte. His daughter, Sarah Duterte, has topped surveys for the vice presidential race. Vast winds are complicating the fight against fires burning across northeast New Mexico. Wind gusts were as fast as 50 miles per hour Sunday. That forced some firefighting aircraft to be grounded, taking away a key tool for battling the blazes. The National Interagency Fire Center says more than 20,000 structures remain threatened. Recapping our top story, dozens of Ukrainians are feared dead after a Russian bomb destroyed a school sheltering about 90 people in eastern Ukraine. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. This is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedrovo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. Leaders from seven developed democracies pledged to ban imports of Russian oil in a meeting with Ukraine's president. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit to Irpin, a town damaged by Russia's attempt to take the capital at the start of the war. More than 10 UN agencies work on a master plan to rebuild the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. The UN Task Force, which is coordinated by the UN Economic Commission for Europe, would oversee reconstruction efforts. No one is under any illusion about the difficulties the work would involve. And such crews hunt the ruins of a luxury hotel in Cuba's capital after a gas explosion kills 30 people. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Leaders from the group of seven developed democracies pledged Sunday to face out or ban imports of Russian oil. The decision came as they met with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky for online talks to stress their support and display unity among Western allies on victory in Europe Day, which marks Nazi Germany's surrender in 1945. As Western allies show their support for Ukraine, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. First Lady Jill Biden among those who are visiting firsthand, AP correspondent Naomi Shannon reports. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit to Irpin, a town damaged by Russia's attempt to take the capital at the start of the war, and raised his country's flag at the Canadian embassy in Kyiv. This comes as the Canadian Trade Minister announced the abolition of duties on Ukrainian goods to help strengthen the economy. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden visited Ozorod, Western Ukraine, for a surprise Mother's Day visit to Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska. People of the United States stand with the people of Ukraine. And a top American diplomat in Ukraine has temporarily returned to the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv. Officials say this is a testament to Ukraine's success. However, it's not clear when the embassy will fully reopen. I'm Naomi Shannon. The United States has announced new sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. The penalties include cutting off Western advertising from Russia's three biggest television stations, banning U.S. accounting and consulting firms from providing services to any Russian, and more restrictions on Russia's industrial sector. Those additional restrictions include cutting off Moscow from wood products, including engines, broilers, bulldozers, and more. The new sanctions will hit Russia's most popular television stations, Channel 1 Russia, 
Russia One and NTV, with the USA's have been at the forefront of spreading misinformation about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. More than 10 UN agencies are working on a master plan to rebuild the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, which has been pummeled by invading Russian forces for more than two months, assuming Russia is defeated. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The UN task force, which is coordinated by the UN Economic Commission for Europe, would oversee reconstruction efforts. No one is under any illusion about the difficulties the work would involve, least of all Ihor Terekov, the mayor of Kharkiv. Speaking from Kharkiv, he says work on the master plan is being done under continued Russian shelling. He says it would be necessary to start implementing the reconstruction plan immediately after a Ukrainian victory. He speaks through an interpreter. After the hostilities, I believe that we will be able to recover the city within a period of two to three years so that the city of Kharkiv uh, becomes even better uh, than um, than it used to be. We will start to rebuild and recover the city as a an ideal city of the future. Kharkiv is the second largest city in Ukraine and the capital of eastern Ukraine, the epicenter of fighting. Terekov says 25% of the city's housing has been destroyed. He says Russia has bombed administrative buildings, schools, hospitals and kindergartens, turning the city's infrastructure into rubble. English architect Lord Nelson Foster is leading the development of the master plan. He calls this an opportunity to combine the revered heritage of the past with the new technologies needed to create a city of the future. This is an opportunity to make the city in the future even greater uh, than it was in the past. It's an opportunity to make it even more vibrant. Uh, and more pioneering in terms of its strengths, its technology, its industry, all the things that make a city great. It is not possible to determine how long it would take to rebuild Kharkiv or what it would cost while the war rages. However, the task force sees development of the plan as an act of confidence in the viability of the city and in its future. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. America's top diplomat to Ukraine, Kristina Kivan, and her team arrived in Kyiv on Sunday after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken promised on a visit last month to reopen the U.S. Embassy in the Ukrainian capital soon. It's the latest step towards the resumption of full U.S. presence in Kyiv after diplomats began returning to the western city of Viv last month, having left the country ahead of Russia's February 24th invasion out of security concerns. The trip, time to commemorate victory in Europe Day on Sunday, was a temporary visit and does not signal the reopening of the embassy, a senior State Department official said. Russia celebrates the 1945 defeat of Nazi Germany on its victory day on Monday. Today, we're 74 days into an unprovoked and unjustified war. A war of aggression against Ukraine, perpetrated by an equally depraved aggressor who as in 1945, will be defeated by the courage and resolve of soldiers and civilians standing up against evil for the common good. I'm thrilled to be able to return to Kyiv, as I said earlier today, Victory in Europe Day, to observe the triumph of good over evil in the city I love, among people who embody the spirit of this commemoration. That's U.S. top diplomat to Ukraine, Kristina Kivin.
Afghanistan's Taliban government ordered women on Saturday to cover their faces in public, a return to a signature policy of their past hardline rule, and an escalation of restrictions that are causing anger at home and abroad. In Pakistan, where an estimated 3 million Afghans are seeking refuge from the policies of the Taliban, there are growing fears that the latest action will lead to more influx and worsening tensions amid economic difficulties. For more, I spoke with VOA's Ayaz Gaw. Generally, when you're looking media here and read the comments, editorial comments, obviously, it seems that predominantly it is being, disappointment is being expressed because that puts Pakistan in, in an awkward situation because Pakistan has been campaigning, advocating for the Taliban to get international assistance to overcome the humanitarian and economic crisis facing Afghanistan. But now with this, one of the harshest restrictions that the Taliban have imposed, forcing women to cover their body in in this so-called burqa, obviously this has not been received well here in Pakistan. And generally, there has been widespread condemnation worldwide. So it's a setback for Pakistan's efforts to convince the world that these are different Taliban from the one who were ruling Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. With a new prime minister in Pakistan, what is the relationship with the Taliban and does he have the influence, the clout, to talk to the Taliban? The relationship is under serious strain right now, if you ask me at this moment, because the number of terrorist attacks originating in Afghanistan have increased in Pakistan And the government has repeatedly demanded that the new rulers of Afghanistan, the Taliban, should contain this anti-Pakistan militant group, Pakistani Taliban, which is operating out of Afghan sanctuaries. So because of that, Pakistan was forced to carry out some cross-border strikes against these suspected hideouts of the Pakistani Taliban, which obviously triggered very strong reaction from the Taliban government in Kabul. So the relationship is very tense and obviously the Taliban, they don't seem to be in a mood to address Pakistan's concerns because privately Taliban officials have conveyed to Pakistan that the world has not recognized them, but you are the immediate neighbor, so you should recognize our government. And that was already an irritant in bilateral relations ever since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan in August last year. But then with this increase in terrorist attacks in Pakistan and Pakistan retaliating by carrying out airstrikes against suspected targets on the Afghan side, obviously it has increased tensions in bilateral relations and we haven't seen any high-level contact in recent weeks or in recent days between the two sides to try to reduce these tensions. So I think this latest development, it's definitely going to have another point in Pakistan's, on Pakistan's agenda next time when they meet the Taliban, that by enforcing this burqa restriction on women, the Taliban are making it more and more difficult for Pakistan and for themselves to encourage the international community and donors to engage with the Taliban and to bring in the much-needed development assistance into the country that has been ravaged by almost four decades of war and an unprecedented drought that continues to create problem for rural Afghanistan. That's VOS Ayaz Gao speaking with me from Islamabad. As the world this week surpassed more than 50 million COVID-19 deaths, including over a million in the United States, U.S. researchers are looking back over the past two years, marking who died here, where and why. 
VOA's Laura Borman has our story. The Guzman family suffered early in the COVID-19 pandemic. September 2020 brought breathtaking loss. My name is Catherine Guzman. This is my sister Jennifer Guzman. And we lost our mother and her husband to COVID-19. But we gained two little angels who my mom adopted and we want to continue to raise them together. As a team. Her parents add to the grim statistic that the U.S. has just crossed one million deaths due to COVID-19. Health researchers in the U.S. are looking back over the past two years, analyzing data on who died, where, and why. They say minorities were hit hard, including younger people whose jobs had them out in the public before much of the population was vaccinated. Dr. Ali Mokdad is an epidemiologist and the chief strategy officer for population health at the University of Washington. They kept our country running, quite honestly. They kept food on our table and they paid a heavy price for it. We as a country failed to protect our essential workers and minorities were more likely to be essential workers. In the early days of COVID-19 in the U.S., people were dying in urban centers. Then the virus spread to more rural areas, There was no national response to COVID-19 at the start of the pandemic. This, combined with misinformation about vaccines, kept many from getting the shot. But medical experts insist that vaccine fears were unfounded. Dr. Georges Benjamin is the executive director of the American Public Health Association. While we did these studies um, in record time, we produced the vaccine in record time. It was built on 20 years, at least, of good science, of the investment in science and study. So we were able to create a vaccine relatively quickly. And because people were not adequately communicated that message, people thought that the corners were cut, but no corners were cut. Other experts say that local health departments across the country were ill-prepared for a pandemic. Dr. Tom Frieden is the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, which aims to make the world safer from pandemics. There is no question that we are reaping the harvest of decades of underinvestment in public health at national, state, city, and local levels in the U.S., as well as globally. Globally, more than 15 million people have died of COVID-19. Many experts say we are through the worst of the pandemic in the United States. David Dowdy is an epidemiology professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I think that that it's important for people to realize that, especially if you've been vaccinated, um, COVID-19 is in most cases a a mild disease. But we still have a large fraction of our population that is unvaccinated. Between 60 and 70 percent of the U.S. population has been vaccinated for COVID-19, and a similar number has been infected, giving them some immunity. But experts say that as the virus evolves and mutates, ongoing boosters may be necessary moving ahead. Laurel Bowman, VOA News, Washington. In other news, such crews with dogs are hunting through the ruins of a luxury hotel in Cuba's capital.
for survivors of an apparent gas explosion. The five-star hotel Saratoga in Old Havana was preparing to reopen after being closed for two years when a massive explosion on Friday killed 30. The blast damaged nearby structures, including the historic Marty Theater and the Calvary Baptist Church. It is the headquarters for the denomination in Western Cuba. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofa in Washington. On Monday, the Philippines will elect a new president. During the campaigning, voters have faced a barrage of disinformation, particularly on social media. Dave Gronenbaum has more on the issue and the people trying to combat it. 35-year-old Mary Grace Glorioso is watching Facebook and YouTube to get news about the Philippines' presidential race. She has narrowed a choice to two candidates. One is Lenny Robredo, the current vice president. But Glorioso is leaning toward the heavy frontrunner, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., because of what she hears about him on social media. The Philippines will prosper if he wins and bring back the golden days, Glorioso says. The golden days is a common theme on social media, referring to the period from the mid-1960s to the mid-80s, when Marco's father, the late dictator, was president. But the phrase whitewashes history. The reality is thousands of people, including political opponents and activists, were tortured, killed, or disappeared. The Marcos families accused of stealing $5 billion to $10 billion when Marco Sr. was in power. Observers say revisionist history is part of a trend on social media to accompany positive posts about Marcos Jr. and negative ones for Robredo. Che de los Reyes leads the fact-check team at ABS-CBN News, one of dozens of media outlets, universities, and civil society groups that are combating disinformation. De los Reyes acknowledges the fact-checkers face an uphill battle. It's so easy to manufacture a false claim, right? You don't need to do anything much. You can just keep on churning and churning falsehoods, false claims. But it's fact-checking takes a lot of time. Marcos Jr. has told local media his campaign is not behind any disinformation. But Cleve Arguelles, a political science lecturer at the LaSalle University in Manila, has noticed some trends. And you can really see the intimate connection between the official campaign and what trolls, for example, uh, what troll accounts, for example, would try to popularize and would try to trend on social media. The question remains whether voters will base their decisions on information or disinformation. Dave Grunebaum for VOA News, KZ. City, Philippines. Ethiopian officials in the northern Amhara region of Ethiopia says Tigrayan forces attacked hospitals and sabotaged water supplies in November 2021, acts that could be considered war crimes. For VOA, Henry Wilkins reports from Haik, Ethiopia. The hospital's emergency room in the town of Haik is in ruins. The roof has been destroyed, the windows blown out. Hospital staff say it was deliberately targeted by forces of the Tigray People's Liberation Front when they attacked the city on November 24, 2021. Sultan Mohammed is a radiologist in Haik Hospital. He says fighters used heavy weapons when attacking health centres. TPL group, I think, is uh, Saturday, targeting from far area, targeting the emergency room, this room, and uh, mainly, mainly the emergency room and the surgical room, targeting from far. He used, I think, mortar or something, heavy weapons. 
Tolton says TPLF fighters later came to the hospital and ransacked it for medical supplies and equipment, including his X-ray machine and ultrasound machines. He says some of the equipment left behind is now unusable because parts were taken by the TPLF forces. Hike residents say the TPLF fighters also sabotaged this water pumping station, denying them access to water. All over town, people can be seen with plastic containers going to fetch water. Farther north in the town of Weldea, Dr Ayalu Abate says the hospital here was ransacked by TPLF fighters and the staff threatened. He explains that TPLF soldiers came to the hospital to threaten medical personnel. We will kill you if we catch any one of you providing medical services for the defence forces, he said. He adds that healthcare institutions are not supposed to be targeted because they serve the whole community. Deliberately targeting water supplies in hospitals that are not being used for military purposes are considered war crimes under the Geneva Conventions, an international treaty that governs conduct during war. Similar attacks on health centres have taken place in Tigray when the federal government launched what it called a law enforcement operation. A UN report found that in June 2021, out of 224 health centres in Tigray, only 40 were functional. Amnesty International researcher Fasiha Tekle explains the attacks on health centres in Tigray. Uh, since the start of the conflict, we have documented that uh, there, are, there have been uh, attacks on medical facilities in areas affected by the conflict. In some places, we have seen that uh, hospitals were targeted for indiscriminate uh, attacks and shelling. Uh, that's the case in, for instance, in Shire and uh, other parts of uh, Tigray. TPLF spokesperson Johannes Abraham rejects the allegations in the Amhara region. Concerning the allegation that uh, Tigrayan forces deliberately destroy a hospital in uh, Haig in uh, the Amhara region, I think these kind of allegations are not new to us. Um, the uh, one thing that the regimes in Ethiopia and Eritrea are good at is that they commit crimes uh, themselves and they frame others as uh, culprits. The Amhara Regional Health Bureau has said that more than 500 health centres in the region have been damaged or destroyed in the conflict. It has not been possible to independently verify that claim. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Hike, Ethiopia. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com. Until next time, I am Chinedo from Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. A brutal ISIS terrorist faced justice in April when he was found guilty of participating in the heinous acts that led to the violent kidnapping, torture and deaths of American aid workers and journalists, as well as the deaths of British and Japanese nationals in Syria. A federal jury in Virginia convicted former British citizen El Shafi El Sheikh for his role in a hostage-taking scheme that held more than two dozen people captive during the Islamic State's reign of terror between 2012 and 2015.
The scheme resulted in the murder of three American men, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, and humanitarian aid worker Peter Kasich, and one woman, aid worker Kayla Muller. The three men were beheaded, and their murders were filmed and used for propaganda videos. Kayla Muller was forced into sexual slavery and repeatedly raped by Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi before she died under unknown circumstances. In a statement, the U.S. Department of Justice noted that evidence presented during the trial showed that el-Sheikh and two other ISIS members, dubbed the Beatles by the hostages because of their British accents, supervised the terrorist organization's jails and detention facilities at which the hostages were held. They were known for engaging in a prolonged pattern of physical and psychological violence against hostages. Thirty-five witnesses testified during the trial, including 12 former hostages who detailed violent and persistent beatings, sexual assaults, waterboarding, and forcible exposure to the murder of other hostages. The jury found El-Sheikh guilty on all eight counts, including hostage-taking, resulting in death, conspiring to murder Americans outside the United States, and conspiring to provide material support to terrorists. El-Sheikh faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison and is scheduled to be sentenced in August. After the verdict, Diane Foley, mother of slain journalist James Foley, praised the American justice system, pointing out that El-Sheikh had four attorneys defending him. El-Shafi El-Sheikh was treated with a great deal of mercy, she said. Hopefully, we were able to turn this into justice, not revenge. The case also highlights that either in a court of law or on the battlefield, a message for terrorists sent by President Biden earlier this year holds fast. We will come after you and find you. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. <laughs>